Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of The Edric Show. I am Edric Jerome, your host. Thank you for tuning in. As always, please hit that subscribe button to The Edric Show channel on YouTube. You can find us uh, at Edric Show on Instagram, and also The Edric Show is our Facebook page. And we are continuing to build this show from the ground up. So thank you for joining us for episode four. Um, I am so happy to be able to um, interview Laval Ward Tofani and welcome her to the show. Um, there are people in this world that God gives gifts to. And in many cases, he gives gifts and multiple gifts to people. And it's, it's rare when those people are also able to share those gifts with the world. And I, I just can't thank her enough for being able to come on the show today. So let me just get her introduction in and let's just get right into it. So Laviola Ward Tafani is a wife, mother of two. She's a self-proclaimed foodie. She's a published author and she illustrates her own books with vector illustration. She has published three children's books, two coloring books that are currently available in over 15 countries. She has a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature, a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. She's an ardent, ardent advocate for mental health. Her passion for mental health has led her to become a prolific speaker on the challenges of dealing with mental health. She's a proud spokesperson for the Stop Stigma Sacramento Bureau's, uh, sorry, Stop Stigma Sacramento Speakers Bureau based out of Sacramento, California. It's her passion to share humor and self-care through her writing and speaking and to use her fun and foodie tales to spread joy to all. So Laviola yes. Ward, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes, that, that intro sounded good. It Thank did, you. it did. She is so <laughs> talented that she actually wrote my intro. <laughs> That's how bad she is. She wrote my intro, uh, but let's get into it. Let's get into it. So let's start out at the beginning. Um, you, yeah. you describe yourself uh, as coming from a cow town. So let's, yes. let's get into that. So where'd you grow up? Where'd you spend your formative years? Yeah, that's a real, I mean, literally, I grew up in the Central Valley. Um, I think a lot of times when people hear about California, they hear about Los Angeles and maybe San Francisco. They hear about beaches and celebrities. And I did not grow up in that part of California. I grew up in the Valley, which is um, an equal distance between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And there is pretty much nothing there. Um, when, I, when I grew up there, in the 90s. Um, yeah, we were literally surrounded by cows. I grew up, there was a, um, a dairy farm on one side and then there was a pork um, mm. farm on the other side. So uh, not much of anything there. You definitely have to develop a good imagination uh, in the country. I think that the area that I grew up in was, is kind of like the equivalent of the South, but within California. Um, so I definitely think it contributed to myself being, you know, in enthralled in books and kind of having to find my own path. Um, but I do appreciate that kind of rural upbringing because it, it, it kind of um, gave me a unique perspective that I think is interjected in any little thing that I do, my writing, my speaking, um, it comes into it. So I appreciate where I come from, but yeah, Merced, a little bitty cow town and uh, that's what made me. Hmm. And how did you develop your love for writing? Because um, obviously that must have started when you were a child, you know, connecting yeah. with your imagination. So um, tell us that process. When did you realize that, hey, I can, I can uh, be pretty good? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I grew up Pentecostal. So we grew up like super strict. There were very uh, strict regulations in the household. So 
uh, it's funny, like, I all I had was my books, you know, I'm an only child. And so we didn't have a TV probably till I was about 13 in the home. So that's pretty much all I had were my books to keep myself entertained. And um, I think because I read so much, eventually that just developed into me loving stories so much that I wanted to create my own. And then I started, you know, as a kid, you know, writing little short tales or fairy tales or, you know, whatever thing my imagination uh, could come up with at the moment. And that just kind of started my love for writing. And that's how I ended up um, moving towards an English degree for my undergrad. Um, yeah, because I just felt like that was my passion. I think it is in many ways still my passion. I think my passion just got more complicated as I as sure. I got grown and lived and right. experienced things. Sure. Um, but that was definitely the foundation. Writing and books have always been kind of like a security blanket for me. So um, that's my happy place. Um, and later on, we'll talk a little bit about an article you, you published uh, around Juneteenth uh, recently. But I want to talk yeah. now about the, the African-American community in your town, um, because you, you had mentioned that there, there weren't a lot of you, but uh, sure. there was definitely a strong African-American connectedness uh, as yeah. part of your family and your, your, your extended circle. So tell us about that. Yeah, so so like I mentioned, I probably mention it in every <laughs> every other piece that I write. Um, there's some semblance of that because I think it made me, uh, it, it, it really had a, a, an integral part in creating the identity that I have. Hmm. Um, I think Blackness is sometimes seen as a monolith, you know, that group of people, they like this and they do this and they listen to this and this is them. And I think it's so much more nuanced than that um, within the Black community. We have sub-communities, we have all sorts of things. We, people have different lived experiences um, all over the world, not even just in America, right? So, um, you know, in my hometown, Black people make about 5% of the population. I never really realized that, you know, I, you know, our community was so tight knit. Everybody was a cousin. I probably got 200 cousins. I have people that I literally reach out to now that are my cousins. I don't know how they're related. I don't know who's cousin, who's aunt, who's mom, who's sibling. I ha I'm not exactly sure, but they're my cousin, you know, because that I think was a safety net for our community. Um, and it's only now as I'm an adult, I'm 35 now and I get, it's funny, I see different representations and I realize how much our culture in my hometown was influenced by Mexican-American culture mm. because the Mexican-American population in that area is about 60%. We didn't know these statistics when I was younger. We didn't know, you know, we were, make, we were, you know, we just kind of were influenced without having any concept of, oh, this part is your culture, this part is their culture. It wasn't like that, you know, it was very much that quintessential, quintessential melting pot kind of ideal. Um, and again, I think that's contributed to my wide breadth of openness and experience as I'm an adult now. Um, but you know, there's all kinds of Black people. Blackness is not <laughs> one simplistic, you know, little um, stereotype that you can just toss on someone. I think that the beauty of Black culture is that it is so nuanced and so varied and we have a lot of different experiences, which is why I go and talk and why I write, because I think my experience is unique. And, um, you know, I want to share that so people know it's not just you, your experience. You know, a lot of us are living different 
experiences as black people and that it's good it's okay we're all supposed to have different lived experiences and appreciate and value all of our different experiences so that's kind of you know one of those driving forces that keeps me talking <laughs> sure sure uh you mentioned you know growing up in a in an area where there was uh quite a few mexican americans you know, there's so much untold history of between African-Americans and uh, Mexican-American, Mexico, right. uh, sure. around the years of slavery. And um, there was a lot of migration of African-Americans down to Absolutely. Mexico. Uh, sure. And, you know, as far as I know, the first Emancipation Proclamation was in 1854, was yep. written in Mexico. So mm. you, you are an example uh, and, and actually experienced some of those uh, hidden aspects of African-American history which is that cross-cultural connectedness right. with, with Mexican-Americans and Mexico in general. So um, right. were you conscious of, of some of that growing up or, or was it just, hey, these are my friends, these are people I play with, it's all good? Yeah, it was very much the latter. We, we just lived. We learned, I learned, I understand, I can watch novelas. I understand a good amount of Spanish without ever having taken any, you know, official coursework or that sort of thing. I think it was definitely just, we were immersed. It was just, um, we were melded together. It was, it, it, there were cultural differences. And no, I don't think I was ever aware of them. I think it was once I became older and I've moved away from the Central Valley, you know, living in the Sacramento area is a little bit of a different demographic mixture um it was only as i've gotten older and experienced other places that i'm like oh okay that was a little different you know mm. um i can remember you know birthday parties where we had like you know there's a lady making tortillas and we have pozole and you know all these <laughs> big mexican dishes and that it, when we were having these experiences it wasn't like oh your, your black family is going to have this mexican dish for this party no, we were just enjoying life and good food. And, you know, that that's just kind of how things evolved. But um, I, I think I'm only aware of it now, you know, as you live and you you come to understand kind of the, the boxes that you might fit into or the boxes that you don't fit into so well. And um, I've, I've become more aware of things. And I think I, I try to... Um, understand that all the, those nuances and technicalities of, of how I've grown up and things like that. But, but again, I mean, I understand the differences. I definitely appreciate it though. I don't think there's a wrong way. You know, I just think that, um, you know, my experience is valid. It's different maybe than some things that I've seen on TV or something like that. Um, but I think that's what makes it all special, you know? Absolutely. So um, you finish high school and you get ready to go to college. Did you go straight to college from high school or tell us about the college years and um, where'd you go? I did. Yeah. I, so I, I actually went to high school for three years. I graduated early. I was like, like I mentioned, a complete and utter book nerd. I did very well in school because my mama was crazy and she didn't tolerate anything less <laughs> anyhow. So my, my best friend and I tied for, uh, not tied, but, Part of me. She was valedictorian and I was salutatorian and we were separated by 0.1 in wow. our GPA. So, um, yeah. And that don't bother was... you to this day, I can tell. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> See, I haven't memorized. Uh, you know, but we grew up the same way. She was, she's, she's Mexican-American, but her family was super strict and same way. We grew up in the same church, so we very much clung to books and things like that and I think that's why we did well. Um, so, yeah, when I... When I um, turned 17, I went directly to college. I went to Fresno State, which is 
the big city compared to where I'm from, but also kind of a more rural kind of agricultural hub of Central California. Um, but it was a big city for me. And, um, you know, and as I talk, if you ever hear um, people hear my, my kind of story when I discuss my mental health path for Stop Stigma, um, I talk about how going away to college um, was initially a freeing experience for me, but also, you know, if you come from a very um, limited sheltered place and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. you're free and in the mm -hmm. real world kind of, um, it can be jarring. And I think, you know, I, I had a bit of a wild time, you know, I, I kind of lost myself in um, trying to kind of make up for lost time for all those sheltered years and so that's a good chunk of my story going and kind of having too much fun and struggling through class when I was a very good student I was at the top of my class you know but I went to college and lost my mind and was at all the parties and none of the classes you know and hmm. so um, that definitely was a transitional time where I had to those first maybe two years of college I ended up having to come home um, because I got into a bad um, car accident my sophomore year but it was all very much a learning experience because I was in the world for the first time and all of these ideas that I had you know when we're young 17 18 we, think we know everything right right we're invincible and I learned very quickly that I knew nothing and that I was not invincible and so I kind of had to come home and start from scratch and then I ended up at the junior college Merced College and that's where my I kind of uh, got back to what I knew, got sure. back on my academics, got back on top of my class. And, and then I ended up finishing there in 2006 with an associates in English transferred to CSE Stanislaus, another very agricultural school, one of the, also one of the CSUs. Um, and that's where I, I graduated from with my bachelor's in English. Shout out to Cal State Stanislaw. My daughter went yeah. there as well and graduated. Oh, snap. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Yeah, she is a warrior. Oh, Definitely a warrior. Cool. Yeah. Absolutely. Go Warriors. That's Go cool. Warriors. Absolutely. That, that's cool. We'll make, that, will make you, that, will, that will make you come to understand how you are as a student because it's, it's not a party school. It's, not a, it's a little bit of a different environment. So you have to get, you know, on your, on your A game. And, you know, that school helped get me back in shape. So I appreciate it. Forever. So funny you say that because we, when she decided to go there, when we, after we toured, uh, she, like you, got out in, in three years because there's absolutely nothing to do down there but go to school. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was, I think, one of the a blessings of having that type of environment is that you really, I agree. And, they, and they're very supportive. And so shout out to Cal State Stanislaw. Yeah, uh, for great, sure. great school. Great school. Yeah. Um, all right. So while you're in college and going through your journey, um, there must have been at some point this love of food. And, and where did that come from? Was it from a childhood? And how, how did you start really appreciating and, and um, getting into uh, food? Yeah, I think I will have to credit my grandmother recipes flow. My granny was uh, my, I mean, my OG best friend. She's my buddy. And she was from Tupelo, Mississippi. And she was a cook, you know, way back in the day. They did sharecropping and, and they had to wake up in the morning and feed pigs and they and they they had a pig farm. And so they any part of the pig, they could tell you where it came from, they could tell you <laughs> how it cut. She could taste a piece of meat and tell you how old it was. It, like it was she was just 
you know, a, a prodigy, I think. She was way ahead of her time. And so when I was younger, she lived in San Francisco. That's where my mother is from. And my grandmother moved, my grandparents moved there in the 60s. And so um, I would spend all of my spare time with her and she'd be in the kitchen. You know, I'd, I'd be right next to her. What's that? What's that, mm. Granny? What you, what is that? What you putting in there? What's that? And, you know, she would just, she would, she would give me, you know, one, one word answers, but, you know, just filling me in on the entire workings of the kitchen. And she kind of sparked that love for me. Taste this. Taste that. It's too much. If it's too salty, then you put this and you put a little vinegar in, and it does this. And, you know, she would just, mm. just in passing, you know, give me all these gems that now she's not here, but I, I hear those things every day when I'm cooking. And she would give me a play by play. I remember being like nine and she's giving me a full tutorial of, you know, how to do these, you know, relatively complicated dishes. And then finally, after a year or two, I remember my uncle, he used to live in the house and he would eat anything. My uncle would eat goulash. So, so anything that was in the refrigerator, he would put corn and tuna casserole and scrambled it. Any leftovers, he would put in a pot and put a, a jar of tomato sauce and that would be a stew and he would eat it, mm. right? So when I would be practicing cooking, he would eat it. He would, I would go make my little, you know, fried chicken or whatever, and he'd eat it. And it was terrible. It was all horrible. <laughs> I didn't figure it out. <laughs> and then when I was about 11, I remember one day I had made him some spaghetti and some fried chicken. He came in and I was, and I was just, you know, taking my time and I'm pinching, I'm pinching a little basil and oregano, like, and I know I'm coming into something different. This might be good, you know? And I take him the food, you know, so proudly. And then he comes back about 15 minutes later, he's cleared the plate and he's like, that's finally good. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I think you finally got it. Okay. You, you've been cooking some mess, but this one is good. So from then on, I was like, okay, I got it, you know? And um, I definitely attribute that love for food to my granny. And thank you to my Uncle Gip, also rest in peace, for being the test subject um, and tasting all of my disgusting <laughs> <laughs> experiments gotta uh, practice, up until right. that point. You know? Got to practice. Yeah. Got to practice. Yeah. Uh, so the love of food actually transferred into your, your writing and, and yeah. the books that you've published. And uh, as I said in the opening, you've published uh, three children's books, two um, yep. coloring books, and they all have this um, aesthetic of, of food. Yeah. Um, and they also have the aesthetic of dreams and, and imagination and True. really melded the two. And so um, tell us how the, the inspiration for, for merging, um, you know, being in tune with your third eye and really being imaginative and food and dreams. How did all that? Start yeah. Happening? Oh, that's funny. I've never even I've never even identified that that merged there. But that's true. My, but again, I can attribute it to to my grandmother who was from the South and very superstitious, you know, and um, mm. she would tell, you know, oh, folks is acting up, it's a full moon, that sort of thing. Um, she was very in tune um, when you mentioned the third eye and that sort of thing, her and my great grandmother, who I was named after, she was, she was uh, Native American and black and she would, she kept the almanac. She had an almanac. Mm. I wish I could find that almanac. Um, she kept it probably for 40, 50 years. And it would talk about the phases of the moon and things you're supposed to cook on certain days and how, when you plant things and that sort of thing. And I think all of those things 
just like I mentioned with my granny in in passing as they imparted knowledge to me, just, just in talking, you know, they're not sitting down saying, let me educate you on this thing, but they're just talking and repeating these things at certain times. And I think I just absorb those ideas. And so I do think that I tend to be a little superstitious and hang on to some of those old teachings. Um, and then, like I mentioned, you know, my love for food, my granny worked, she was a, a cook at Candlestick Park for 36 years before she passed. And I think those things kind of just naturally phase together. And when I was at Stanislaus, I took a creative writing for children's course. That's where this book, the Delicious Dreams book. You mean this book? This is, yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> That's where that book came from. The first draft of that book came from that creative writing course. It was a creative children's literature course. That's where the, the, kind of foundation for that book came from and then it wasn't until later that I had my daughter and I we were in the pandemic and I had like a creative like rejuvenation probably because I was going stir crazy inside the house and that's where I, I kind of revamped it and then Roma got um, put into the character and that's how that kind of got reborn and come into fruition um, but yeah it's interesting that you mentioned those two things I've never even paid attention to the the two how they've merged in my work but I think that's just how my brain works you know I always want snacks and I'm always <laughs> thinking of the fantastical you know I always am imagining the what-ifs and so um yeah I think it just kind of naturally um came out in the work that I've done and I think it will continue to because I love those things and it's an honest kind of um you know, it comes honestly from my brain. That's really my brain. If you look into delicious dreams, you can see how, how it looks in my head, right? Mm, so mm, mm, I can't mm -hmm. draw to mm -hmm. save my life, but I'm good with computers. So once I learned that there were things, such a thing as, as vector illustrations where you're basically making collages, essentially collages of, of images and graphics and all of these um, things that are electronically rendered, and you're putting them together to create a vision. And if you look in there, all the color and the madness and the chaos and the, the order within that chaos, it's, it's completely how my brain works and how my thoughts look. And so I think it was a really um, cathartic experience to get those colors and frames out of my head and onto a paper. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just been a natural progression and I'll, I'll continue to hopefully, uh, keep coming up with fun stuff um, as long as my creativity is peaked. And, and that's a rare talent to be able to not only write the narrative, write the story, uh, craft the story, but also put images in your vision in terms of how the story looks. Most people, most authors, that's another either another department or somebody else does my illustrations. But um, right. how were you able to, and that's so unique, how were you able to um, develop that skill? You said you were, you were very good at computers. Right. Uh, and then not only that, but have the confidence to actually say, you know what, I'm going to do this myself. I can do this. Cause that's, that's not easy. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. It's funny because, you know, they say, um, I don't know what that, what's that saying? Something out of necessity, kind of oh, ingenuity or something like that. Yeah. Mother's invention. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I know the saying, but I, yeah. obviously we can't repeat it. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. It, <laughs> that's how it came about. So I was trying, I had this, like I mentioned, I had the, the framework for this book 
for probably 10 years, just sitting, saved. In the, no, actually, I had, it, I had it written out. In the original, I have it somewhere here as well. In the, when I wrote the original book, I had made a physical collage, like literally cutting mm -hmm. construction mm -hmm. paper and magazine clippings to create the images for the book. That's a, how I turned it into the project for class. My teacher then told me, you could publish this. You probably should try and publish this. Well, I had submitted it to a couple of publishers back then and it was rejected. And I've heard that books that rhyme are very difficult to get published because rhyming is very subjective. So I just kind of put it on the shelf for years and years. Um, so this year, or no, I think it was last year, um, I start looking at it again. I start revisiting it. I went back to it. I edited the wording a little bit. And then I found out that you can hire, there's, there's um, apps like Fiverr where you can hire illustrators, you can hire even writers to do short tasks for you. So I thought, well, maybe I can find an illustrator. I can probably tell some of my vision mm -hmm. and I bet I could get it done. And I had gotten, uh, I, I had a little money put away. And so I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. Let me do this. So I had hired an illustrator on Fiverr. And I explain, I give him this long diatribe. This is my vision. It's got to be colorful, I, you know, compounded. I need this, this. I even found um, images online that were, you know, kind of shaped the way that I wanted to view. I, I, I could see it kind of. And I sent it over to him and he's like, oh, perfect. I got it. I, I, I can put this together. And he sent me back the most ashy, <laughs> halfway dollar store I was like what it was horrible and I don't you know not, not no disrespect to him I think it was a good basic rendering but it was nothing like what my brain wow. was doing and I've done made party flyers and you know diff, you know done different graphics just going to school and then in my own personal life doing things I've held them to health groups and done the flyers and things so I said you know what I can do this myself there's no way I'm going to pay this man hundreds of dollars to do this. And I am completely displeased. And my brain wouldn't even let me proceed because, you know, when it comes to words, you know, if you do anything creatively and you make music and that sort of thing, you need it to be the vision that you have, right? right? Whether it's right. a sound, whether right. it's a taste, if you're cooking, um, whether it's a project, if you're somewhat, you know, within a corporate um, setting, you need it to be the vision that you have in mind. So I said, I can do this myself. I showed my son, my son's 10 years old. I'm like, I'm like, Calvin, do you like this? Like, would you read this book? He's like, no, no, <laughs> it's not colorful and it's kind of boring. And they just, it's, it's a little lazy, you know, it's a little mm. lazy. I said, mm. you are absolutely right. So I just got to work. I mean, literally that day, maybe like 10 o'clock at night, I just started. I put all the words into the, the program that I was using and then they just started to come to life. And the more I added, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is how it looks in my head. And the more, the, the more that I added, the closer it got. And then eventually it was realized and I knew there's no turning back. I can do this for everything now. I can make it myself. And so that's what I've done. You know, I say you want it done right, you gotta do it yourself, so. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Well, they're, they're beautifully rendered. Um, and we'll put a link in the description. You can get all of our books are on Amazon. Uh, so we'll have a link there so you can pick them up. Uh, just really, they're just so they're colorful and, and just vibrant. And 
you know, they just, they just, they look really, really good. And it's just a testament to you and your talent, because uh, as I said in the opening, you know, you are blessed with multiple, multiple gifts. And um, this is just one example of that. Um, Let's shift gears now and um, talk about, you are very forthcoming and very open about your struggles uh, with mental health. And not only that, but just you're an advocate for just how important it is for people to take care of their mental health, especially in these times we are in with so much going on in the world. So um, tell us about the story, your your journey, your your struggles with with mental health and, and just how you were able to get through all of that to be where you are today. Right. Um, You know, like I mentioned, I come from a really small town. I grew up in a very um, kind of sheltered environment within the church. And I think that a lot of within my own community, within the black community, I think you might find you might find a lot of people that grew up within the church. And therefore, the struggles that many of us have were not necessarily dismissed, but it's like when you are a person of faith, it can come to question your faith if you're having difficulties Mm. and you're not relying solely upon God to remedy those things. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think as we grow and learn and understand the complexities of the human mind, we have experiences and things that may not necessarily just be attributed to, you know, happenstance. Sometimes there's something chemical going on. Sometimes there's traumas and things that we experience that have to be dealt with. Um, And we definitely can pray. It's not mutually exclusive. You know, faith is not removed from it necessarily if you're a person of faith. Um, But I think that may not necessarily be the end all be all if we're having difficulties. And so I did struggle for years with difficulties. And when I talked about going off to college and kind of, you know, partying out and losing it, I think some of that came from my own depression and anxiety. I had really bad social anxiety Mm. and people never believe it, you know, because I talk and I joke and whatever, but I I have really difficult social anxiety and it's hard for me to talk with people. I'm an only child. I spend a lot of time by myself as a child. So um, I think all of those things being compounded and not being dealt with when I was younger, uh, led me to a place where I struggled and those things compounded and got worse. And I ended up later um, experiencing panic attacks and having, you know, really severe difficulty. And after kind of halfway approaching treatment and self-care and that sort of thing, you know, I took medicine here and there. I went, you know, to a little class and that sort of thing. Um, I think at, at a point it got so bad that I had to take a comprehensive approach. I had to get on some medication for a while. I was on medication for about two years. Thankfully, I have a job that has great health care coverage. And so I had all of these things available to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I was able to kind of go full force into taking care of myself and addressing all of these concerns that I kind of been brushed to the side over the sure, years. Sure. And so once I was able to do that and take a comprehensive approach, I got therapy, I went to groups, I took some medication, you know, I had some ongoing fully um, evaluative kind of circumstances so I could figure out what was going on and get everything addressed. After that, it kind of opened up this, I had this aha moment and I'm like, wow, if I can get help, I can probably help some other people. Mm-hmm, and there's exactly. some people that are probably experiencing things the way that I am. 
and may not feel comfortable speaking to a therapist that doesn't understand their experiences or um, going to a group where no one looks like them and that sort of thing. So I said, well, if I was going to get over my issues, it the only way I was able to do that is by finding people that I related to and finding a comprehensive approach and someone saying, hey, it's okay. You're not crazy. You have these things going on, but it can be dealt with. The only way I can help is if I go and tell more people that same message. And so um, I went back to school and that's how I ended up getting my master's in clinical mental health counseling because um, I just felt the need, like if I could get help this way, I have to help others. And, um, and it's, don't paint me as a mother Teresa. It is somewhat self-serving because it's very cathartic for me to, go and talk to a group of people and pour out my heart and then them say, oh yeah, me too. Me mm. too. Mm-hmm. Well, I would do that too. Oh, you did that? Oh, I did that too. Oh, you partied seven days a week to escape that feeling? Oh, I did that too. And I did worse. I can talk mm. them, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's been a very cathartic experience to kind of go out. And, I've gone to Fortune 500 companies. I've gone to, you know, yacht clubs. I've gone to um, county buildings and um, very large corporations and things and poured out my heart and had people of every demographic you could think of saying yeah me too I felt that same way and so I definitely um, intend to do that forever I, I don't I don't think that I'll ever stop talking about mental health and giving my own um story I think because it's helpful and I always have someone people will email me and say hey I, I saw your talk six months ago at CalPERS and I went to therapy after that you know and that mm-hmm. is the greatest feeling in the world so mm-hmm. um, definitely pulling myself out of that dark place um, made me want to go and try as best as I can to help others get out of that dark place. Um, how did you get connected with Stop Stigma Sacramento Speakers Bureau, um, which just, you know, gave you an opportunity and a platform to, to um, you know, be able to have these conversations with people about it. So tell us about that group and how you got to, to be a part of it. Yeah, so Stop Stigma Sacramento is so cool. They're, they're, it's something funded actually by the taxpayers within Sacramento County. So Sacramento County, um, there's a bill from several years ago that designated a certain amount of taxpayer funds to this particular um, project called It's Not All, Mental Illness is Not Always What You Think. Hmm. And so for several years, I think now less, um, but for several years, they had billboards all over the county. And the billboards would show someone that looks like me or you or a neighbor or cousin or aunt or whomever. And it would disclose a diagnosis that they were living with and basically just outline saying, you know, mental illness doesn't look necessarily how you think it might look. It's not some person twitching on the corner necessarily. It might be your your next neighbor, you know? Mm -hmm. I saw those billboards as I was working on my master's And I just happened to reach out to them one day and went to uh, a training with them, had a really great experience and they welcomed me in. And I, you know, I've been going ever since that was in 2018 and they have a really extensive training program where they allow you to work with speakers that are already speaking. They even bring in mental health professionals from, you know, all around the County. Um, And, you know, it's, it's all free. So you go in, you know, you're volunteering in um, and you can get matched with really good 
professional allies that can assist you through this process if you want to make the speaking you know a permanent part of you know what you're doing and so they gave me some really good tools helped me to kind of write and chronicle my own mental health story and gave me the um just the opportunity to go to places that I could never in a million years have imagined that I'd be speaking at, you know? And I think that's what the beauty of it is. It takes me outside of my comfort zone. And every time before I get ready to speak, I'm like crippled with anxiety. I don't want to do it. I want to reschedule. Just like before this podcast, people, people never understand. Before, before any speaking thing, I am frazzled and I always want to cancel. And I, ne- I rarely do, but I always feel like, oh my God, I'm going to look crazy. And I think Stop Stop Stigma has helped me, push me past my limits in that way because they've brought me, you know, into a, a, a auditorium with a thousand people. And I get the nerve somehow to get up there and tell my story just because they, you know, that's what they expected me. That's what I'm there for. And so it's been cathartic. It's been quite the experience for me and they've been very helpful in helping me to, um, you know, get stronger and share my story and, and be more pointed in my talks and just helping me, I think, grow in terms of a speaker, but as a person, you know, and I reach out and interact with so many people that I never would cross just, you know, going grocery shopping probably. Hmm. And um, it's just been a really good experience. I've been on the news several times, you know, I have a couple of ongoing things where I, um, you know, talk and that leads me to other experiences. Um, as I'm speaking, then I let them know that I write and then I, you know, I'm opened up to other experiences. So it's just been a wonderful, um, effect kind of domino effect. Um, just from, you know, going out and telling the truth (laughs) about my weird frazzled, uh, kind of mind, um, and feeling related to and accepted. And, uh, hopefully along the course of these things, if I can help one person, you know, that, is the goal for me. Absolutely. Uh, we have a few minutes left. So there's a couple more things I want to get into with you. Um, sure. We just celebrated Juneteenth and uh, yes. you had an article published recently uh, in the June edition of the Sacramento County Cultural Competence and Ethnic Services Newsletter. And you right. wrote about Juneteenth and, and we've gotten a little bit of gist of your family life and growing up in that African-American experience uh, in the town you grew up in. Uh, but you also had some very poignant insights on Juneteenth itself. And so I just want right. to ask you about um, your take on Juneteenth, uh, especially now that it is a federal holiday and right. a lot more attention to it. And so um, it, tell us about Juneteenth from your perspective and, and how you're feeling about it today. Sure. Um, that piece, it's so funny. I wrote that piece before they had the proclamation about Juneteenth becoming a national holiday. So I thought just what crazy timing um, mm. because I had through a Stop Stigma speaking event, I had gotten invited to write a piece. And so I just did a little bit of research, you know, and I think um, the piece that I wrote basically chronicled how much of an event Juneteenth was in my hometown for the Black community without us really knowing necessarily all of the roots Mm -hmm. of what Juneteenth was. Mm -hmm. It's so funny that I think we always captured the essence of what Juneteenth is Juneteenth was the actual Independence Day, I think, for a lot of Black America. Um, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know that we necessarily knew all those specifics when we were celebrating. I don't right. know that everyone right. knew all the dates. I don't know that everyone knew, 
you know, that it was Texas, that, you know, the Union soldiers went uh, to um, announce that the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed like the year before. I don't think we knew any of those particulars. Mm. I just think we knew the idea of it. It was a Black holiday. It was <laughs> celebrating Black freedom. Remember, slavery ended. We happy about that. So let's celebrate. And that was the celebration. But I think that, um, I think it was so necessary because, you know, even in the town that I grew up in, we were poor. We, we came from nothing. We didn't have much, you know, but Juneteenth every year was a time where everyone brought everything together. Whatever you had, you had a little bit of flour, your neighbor had a little bit of sugar, your other neighbor had some eggs, you could put it together and have a cake, mm-hmm. you know? And we mm-hmm. put things together and, it, and this <clears throat> sense of, of unity emerged without us making a fuss about it. But this sense of unity, and I think the essence of Juneteenth, um, especially within the Black community, just emerged. We knew that something special, something needed to be commemorated, and we showed up. And that was really the most important, probably the most, one of the you know top three, Christmas, Easter, Juneteenth, I think were probably the most important holidays in our hometown. And we came together to make sure that we commemorated that event. Um, and it's, it's just been a special day for all of our lives. And I think I appreciate them recognizing it nationally now, but mm-hmm. I think it was still, you know, just as special even prior to that for us. So I think Juneteenth is just, it's special. And then when you learn the significance of it and get into the, the specifics, I think it makes it even more special. Um, but I don't think that takes away from anything that we felt about the holiday growing up. It was our day, you know? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud and glad that we've been able to see a day where it's commemorated nationally. Um, I think that the Black community is, you know, still has our struggles. We, we still mm-hmm. have so much against us, but I mm-hmm. think that um, those little things, I, I say the little thing, I don't know if everyone would agree, but I think, you know, those are some of the things that are due, you know? Yeah. Just, you know, acknowledge, yes, yeah. the day that we finally learned. Could you imagine just the, just the concept of being someone enslaved, right? Being an enslaved, vi- completely cognizant, aware, capable human being being owned hmm. by another human being and then not knowing that there's been a piece of paper signed that hmm. says that you're now on your own. You're now free, right? Or even worse, I think, knowing that somebody signed some paper somewhere that says that you're free, but you're still in in the space where you are treated as property because that place that you're in refuses to recognize that piece of paper that's signed across the world. Exactly. So then imagine the freedom when someone knocks on the door, this union soldier knocks on the door and says, hey, guess what? You know how they freed us a year ago? Well, congratulations, you're free for real today. Imagine the weight mm-hmm. that, 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 that knock on that door probably lifted. And I think that that's what Juneteenth captures. So uh, I don't think we'll ever be able to uh, make up you know, for the loss uh, that the institution of slavery um, impeded upon our people. But you know, I think that's that's a baby step. I'll take it. You know, it's a step in the right direction. So I think that you know it's important, and I'll take it. 
Yeah, there you go. And <clears throat> hopefully it'll bring more awareness to people going forward and um, people really start, like you said, to learn about it <clears throat> and know what's really going on sure. about Juneteenth. Um, let me wrap it up with um, asking you about music. I know music is, is something you enjoy. Yes. Uh, most creative people <clears throat> love music. So yes. tell me, uh, who are some of the artists, the musical artists, the musical tastes that you have, and who do you like to listen to? So, you know, uh, like I mentioned, I think prior to uh, starting the interview, um, you know, as much as I consider myself an academic and I am very well read and I like to think that I am an intelligent uh, person, I like extremely just, I mean, the, the most gutter of rap music, <laughs> like <laughs> anything in the hood that can be played really loud, that's, that's something that I appreciate. Um, I will give an ode to my granny and she instilled a love for the blues. She loved B.B. King. That was mm. her absolute favorite. So I definitely have those moments. I'll have my blues, my B.B. King, my, you know, uh, even some soul like Etta James. I love Rick James, you know, we branch off, you know, go on into the a little bit later times. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I really love rap music it's i think that rap music has um evolved i think that it definitely encompasses a a large segment of black american culture mm -hmm. i think because of um how the institution of slavery stripped away all of our cultural nuances and things like that um we kind of became this monolith i think and i think hip-hop culture is very much akin to uh, modern day representation of black culture. So I love rap music. I love, uh, I love more intellectual, lyrical rap music like Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I also love uh, not so uh, politically sound rap music. I love Mozzie. I love, mm -hmm. um, uh, I love E-40. Mm -hmm. I love um, some older works like like Mac Dre Tupac is my favorite rapper of all time um a little bit of you know I dabble in the south I love UGK and Bum B and and Pimp C and you know um but I definitely love west coast uh contemporary you know 1990s 2000s rap music that's that's I think where my where my heart and soul is Nipsey Hussle rest in, rest in peace he passed away um that sort of thing um and I know that it in some ways it seems like an oxymoron, you know, if you're trying to be uh, an academic person, but I think there's so much merit uh, and there's a different type of wisdom and knowledge that's present in that, in, in certain areas of rap music that may not be considered, you know, academic or the uh, lyrical greats in that sort of way. But I think that there is a strength and um, there's a different level of intellectual, uh, you know, just, just strength and, and creativity that comes in, you know, that real gutter music. And I'm from the country, you know, I'm from the country. I live in the hood, you know. <laughs> I definitely will uh, probably change zip codes, but you, they say you can take the girl out the hood, you can't take exactly, the hood out the <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I'm always, I, I always have a, a soft spot in my heart for, for, you know, the street music. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for, for blessing this program today and coming on and sharing your, your, it's a remarkable story. Um, you have so many gifts 
and you're sharing those gifts with the world. Um, you're blessed with, you have a wonderful and beautiful family. Um, and it's just, again, I just wanted to say thank you for, for sharing your story and hopefully inspiring others who, who might be struggling with mental health. Right. Um, we'll put uh, some information about you uh, in, this, in the um, description, but if people want to get a hold of you, see some of your stuff, how can they get a hold of you? Um, so the, the main hub for everything is my website that I'm working on. It's uh, booklaviola.com. Um, so that's pretty much everything. My books, my book links, um, are all there. My speaking engagements, um, I'm compiling everything there. So it is up and active now, but I'm consistently adding to it. All my social media presences and things are there. Um, so I would definitely, um, point to that, to the website, booklaviola.com. Um, and that's kind of the one-stop shop for everything. If I'm, if I have any, uh, upcoming speaking events and things like that. Um, I will be updating my calendar now that the world is open again. Absolutely. And I'll be uh, hopefully getting back into that pretty soon once my son's in all-star baseball season right now. So everything's on hold because we're focusing on that right now. Um, but anything that's coming up will be, it'll be listed on the website and my books, any uh, new projects that I'm working on, it's all going to go in that one, one place. All right. Like I said, we'll have a, a link to your website and everything in the description. Uh, Lavaola Ward Tofani, her latest book, Delicious Dreams. Uh, I hope that's coming in with the lights. Um, that is Baby Roma. Shout out to Baby Roma. Yeah. Yes. Uh, She's awesome. in the background over here waiting. Where's my mama? <laughs> She's cool. It's cool, cool people, even at her young age. Oh, oh, there. Oh. Hey, Roma. Well, there hello there. there. Hey, cutie. California and Roma. Hey, cutie. Hi. hi. <laughs> They've been waiting in the background for me to stop talking. <laughs> what a cutie! What a cutie! Well, bye. I'll let you get back to your family. I know they uh, they probably like wait, like you said, where's mama? So I'll let you get back to yeah. them. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. This has been the Edric Show. I am Edric Jerome, your host. Please hit the subscribe. Look for us on Edric Show at on Instagram and the Edric Show on our Facebook page. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Take care.